All right, so uh, this morning we continue our series, uh, Realization Refresh. Uh, it's the time of year, it's Epiphany. Uh, for many of you who know that time of year, it's, Epiphany is the Latin word for realization, for realizing again who Jesus is. And so we spend time in the Gospels this time of year, along with most of the church around the world, uh, to remember again who Jesus is. And last week, uh, Judd preached from Romans, a bit of a break from the Gospels. Uh, Judd, lots of people came up to me and said how grateful they were for the words that you spoke, so thank you. Uh, but if you remember, we began this series, Realization Refresh, with Jesus at his baptism and the voice from heaven saying, This is my Son whom I love, and him I am so pleased. And we heard the echoes of, of Psalm 2 about how Jesus is our King, or is the King, but also, too, the servant songs from Isaiah that Jesus is a servant kind of king. And then we talked about it the week after that, about when Jesus was in Nazareth, in his hometown, <clears throat> teaching, and he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Again, another reference to the servant of Isaiah, and talking about what he'd come to do. And we talked about some, we reflected as a church of how, how amazing this sermon was, and how I talked about how it was one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, and then trying to figure out how did the people around him get it so wrong that after a few uh, exchanges back and forth, they actually wanted to kill Jesus on that Sabbath morning, or that Sabbath evening. <clears throat> so we talked about how do we understand Jesus right. So for the last while, we've been talking about Jesus and, and listening and realizing that Jesus is our kind of king, or what kind of king he is. And this morning, we're going to begin reading Luke chapter 6. We're going to get into it in a minute. But we start realizing not just the kind of king that Jesus is, but the kind of kingdom that Jesus is bringing. And I have to tell you, I've been reading this and studying this, um, just the, the, the first portion of Jesus. It's called the Sermon on the Plain. In Matthew, it's called Sermon on the Mount. Jesus goes up and preaches on a mountain. In, Ma in Luke, uh, it talks about Jesus coming down to a flat or level spot or a plateau. <clears throat> so I've been reading this passage, and I have to tell you, it's been challenging for me. I hear the Holy Spirit as I've been reading it challenging me to one, depend on the Lord more, to be more generous, to give more, to share more, to be less afraid that I don't have to keep keeping for myself. It's been challenging for me. And I wonder too, like some of you as you read Scripture, how often do you read something about when Jesus or uh, one of the characters, one of the people of the Bible say something about poverty or wealth? How many times are you challenged? Right? It's a lot. And how many times do we wrestle with how much we have? You know, the things, the ways that God has blessed us. Excuse me. How do we know how much we should share and keep? And, and so I'm, I've been wrestling with this myself, and I suspect some of you, as we get into it today, may be asking some of these same questions. So we're going to be reading from Luke chapter 6, uh, verse 17 to 26. But before I read, I just want to say a couple things. First of all, is that this sermon is, my, my opinion is it's probably a summary of the sermon. I, I read it through this week. It takes about two to three minutes to read the whole sermon as it is in Luke. It's just the one chapter. Uh, in Matthew, it's a bit longer, uh, that particular sermon. So I, I kind of, uh, you know, some think, well, maybe it was just a two or three minute sermon and, and that was kind of what people did. I, I think it was probably longer than that. And so we're getting the summary, the condensed, the, the, the essential parts of the sermon here from Luke uh, in Luke's gospel. 
And also, too, some people question, you know, because there's a lot of things in this sermon of Jesus that sounds a lot like the Sermon on the Mount. And so there's differing ideas. Some think that it's actually the same sermon, the same event, and Luke and Matthew just tell it in slightly different ways, uh, slightly different, emphasize slightly different points. Um, others think that it was probably that Jesus preached this kind of material, this kind of topics, these sort of things. He taught these things numerous times throughout his career, throughout his ministry in Galilee. And then some, uh, another option too is that actually these things were sayings that Jesus taught and both Matthew and Luke kind of put them all in one sermon moment. I, I tend myself to kind of uh, be with that second option that Jesus preached these things in Galilee and so that this, even though the content is similar to what uh, Jesus preaches on the mount in Matthew's gospel, that this in my mind is a, is a different occasion. Similar material, similar things that he's saying, similar points, but a different uh, sermon. So there's just, I mean, if you want to read in more into that, you can, but that's kind of where I'm coming from with this. And so for some of you who maybe have questions of, I've heard this before, but this isn't how I've heard it. Oh, but it's because it's not quite the same as Matthew's gospel, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. That's the first thing. The second thing I want to mention too is how, um, in the beginning, we'll read here in a minute, is who is all connected into this sermon? Who's all here listening? Luke talks about, one, the apostles are there, the twelve, and then disciples, this larger group of people who were gathered around, who were following Jesus. And then it also talks, too, about a crowd of the people. That's a whole mix of people, people who weren't following Jesus yet or who hadn't devoted their lives to following him or didn't even know him yet. This was maybe their first time seeing him. So there's this kind of these three, there's this center core, then a group around that, and then a larger group of the crowd. But it's also interesting, too, is that Luke tells that there are people from uh, Judea and from Israel, or sorry, from Judea and from Jerusalem, but also people from Tyre and Sidon. So in the ancient world, like for us, you know, these are just cities, and you know, maybe some of us have some biblical uh, references uh, that we know that Jesus is basically saying here, we've got a whole group of insiders, the people on, from the right side of the tracks, uh, from Judea and from Jerusalem, and then we have a whole group of people from Tyre and Sidon, the wrong side of the tracks, the wrong kind of people, probably many of them were Gentiles, who were gathered around to hear Jesus speak these words. So you get an, uh, an idea for how broad he's, uh, the people, the group that he's talking to. The other thing that's interesting too is that these people, uh, talk about, and we'll read it here in a second, is that they are gathered for healing. That's mainly why they had come around Jesus because they were trying to touch him because people were being healed and people with uh, all sorts of uh, um, troubled spirits were coming and being healed. So they were gathered to be healed. So they kind of came, uh, rightfully so, for their own interest. Like, something's wrong with me. I need to get by this Jesus guy so that I can be healed. So they come gathered around him to be healed. And Jesus heals them. But then he also begins teaching them about the responsibility of becoming a disciple, about what it means to follow him. Healing is great. But it's sort of, interestingly, it's kind of a minor thing in, in the Gospels that healing is a sign of God, of what God is doing, a wonder. But then Jesus used that as a way to begin talking with them about, okay, so this is what it means to follow me. Healing is just the beginning. And so he begins to disciple them. So with those, kind of that background, if you would turn to Luke chapter 6, verse uh, 17 to 26. If you want to, it's also in the back of your bulletin if that's easier if you forgot your Bible today. So, uh, read this with me. So, uh, he, Jesus, went down with them and stood on a level place. 
A large crowd of his disciples was there and a great number of people from all over Judea and Jerusalem and from the coast of Tyre and Sidon who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by evil spirits were cured and the people who tried to touch him because his power was coming from him and healing them all. Looking to his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven, for that is how their fathers treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when, when all men speak well of you, for that is how their fathers treated the false prophets. Let us pray together that we would hear God's word. Holy Spirit, we pray for your help for this challenging uh, first part of Jesus' sermon. Lord, please help us to hear it. Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear and help us to respond. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Pretty stark beginning to a sermon, right? <laughs> Blessed is this group, but woe to this group. It's interesting, I hear Jesus as he begins, he's getting at this reversal that comes as a part of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a reversal of the human kingdom. The kingdoms of man or the kingdoms actually even of Satan. The things will be reversed. And it's pretty interesting because it says, blessed are the poor. Which in the ancient world, and I'd say pretty similar to this time, even our uh, culture, is we say usually, blessed are the rich, right? Blessed are those who seem like God is favoring them. They're the ones who are blessed. The poor people, poor them. But Jesus is turning this on its head. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are they. And it's interesting as I'm thinking about this, as I'm watching through, we have to begin with the, the part of blessing them. And I hear Jesus is speaking. Actually, if you look at verse um, 14. No, sorry, look at verse 20. Sorry, look at verse 20. It says, Jesus looking to his disciples. So he Luke gives us this tiny little clue that he looks to his disciples, people who were following him, and begins speaking to them. The interesting thing, though, is there's this crowd gathered around him, right? And so they're hearing these things as well. And interesting, I think, you know, as Luke wrote it down, that we kind of become part of the audience as well. We hear Jesus speak to them. Because he says, blessed are you who are poor. Almost like he's speaking to them, but almost over their shoulders to us as well. That we get included into this sermon. Blessed are you. The other thing that I'm pretty astounded by, actually, is the grace of this sermon. It's interesting. Jesus says, blessed are the poor. Not, blessed are you when you do this, this, and this. Or, blessed are you when you accomplish this, that, and the other thing. He just says, blessed are you. It's a gracious statement. Blessed are the poor. That's also kind of challenging for me too or interesting for me that Jesus says, blessed are the poor. Which is, I mean, I think in my theology it's, it's challenging because I think Jesus would say, blessed are the faithful, right? Blessed are the faithful. Blessed are the people who go to church every Sunday or blessed are the people who um, do personal devotions who really follow Jesus. 
But he says pretty simply, just starkly, blessed are the poor. And in Luke's gospel, the word he's using here is uh, tokois. Uh, we've talked about the summit a couple of weeks ago when Jesus said, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to the tokois. Tokois is um, very, it's, and that's the difficulty with words like this is they can have meanings, right? What it means and then also kind of what we use it to mean. So in terms of like what tokois means or poor means, it's talking about people who don't have a lot of money, who don't have a lot of stuff. Like have almost no money and no stuff. That's what we're talking about. That's what the word literally means is poor like that. And so Jesus goes on to say, and he says, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the hungry, for they will be filled. Blessed are those who are weeping, for they will laugh. Now, I hear this not as saying, blessed are you who are poor, and blessed are you who ate too much for breakfast, and blessed are you who are really sad today. I hear Jesus talking about all this group as one group. Blessed are the poor, the hungry, and those whose hearts are broken because of their situation in life. He's talking about one group here. These are all um, descriptions of people who, the things that you go through, through poverty. So he's talking about this one group. And it's also interesting too because he says, blessed are you who are hungry now, for one day you will be satisfied. And now and will be the difference between the two. Blessed are you who weep now, right now, because one day, one day you will laugh. There's this reversal coming. So there's this idea the way things are now is not the way they will be one day. And I hear this as Jesus speaking as the Messiah, talking about his kingdom, that one day his kingdom will come and things will be different. And then there's this last blessing. He said, blessed are you when people insult you and they exclude you, when they hate you, when they, he says, literally throw your name out. He says, actually, when they, so like when they reject you. Blessed are you when that happens. As great as your reward. Not that these things get you more reward, but actually that you already have this reward in heaven. So remember that and be blessed. And so when these things happen, he says, rejoice. And one of the, actually, Daryl Bach was one of the uh, professors that I was reading as I was studying this. He said, this is the only command in this whole section here is rejoice and be glad when these things happen. It's an imperative. It's a command to do this. Rejoice and be glad. Because this is how the, your, their fathers, talking about uh, in this context, or in that context it was, uh, the people of Israel, how their fathers talked about the prophets. Prophets had, being a prophet was a hard job. People didn't really like what the prophets had to say. Even though it was honest and true, prophets oftentimes were persecuted. And so Jesus is saying, rejoice and be glad. People insult you and persecute you and reject you because of the Son of Man. Okay, so this is the first part, the blessings. Now, this is the trouble, too. Uh, we have to get to the difficult part. Where he says, but woe to you who are rich. Because you have received your comfort. 
the comfort that you have now, that's your reward. And one day it will be gone. He says, woe to you who are satisfied now because you will be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now because you will weep. And you know, I'm reading this this week, and maybe some of you are wondering, as you know, what does you know Jesus have against having a, a good meal or not being hungry? What is what's wrong with that? How is that sinful? Or what does Jesus have against like laughing? Right? I thought you know one of the gifts of the Spirit or one of the marks of a Christian is joy. So what's why is Jesus speaking against laughing here? And we'll get to that. But I hear Jesus speaking here again. It's not different groups, so. Not, woe to you who are rich, you're one group, and then one group who is satisfied, who had a big enough breakfast, woe to you, and then one group who is laughing, woe to you. I don't hear him saying that. He's saying to one large group. So these are descriptions of the same group of people. And in, in Jesus' time, the word, um, what's plusios in, in Greek, which means um, rich, um, tokois, poor, plusios, rich, that these became like shorthand ways of saying uh, a type of people, a group of people. And I'll get more into what the poor means here in a minute, but the, the rich is the people who, who were rich and who were arrogant about it. Like over-the-top arrogant and subtly arrogant. The people who, because of their wealth, their ability to provide for themselves, became less dependent on God and in some ways became totally un, or independent, that's the right word there, not dependent on God at all. That they actually thought that they could make it through life without Him. And that the decisions they made, they started making them for their own, uh, for their own benefit without ever asking the Lord, what do you want me to do? And it's interesting, I talked with a few, some of you uh, this week asking for kind of how do you hear this and it's similar to the professor, uh, Professor Bach, who I was reading, and, and Professor Green, uh, their commentaries on Luke. They were all talking about um, this idea of dependence on God. That essentially that Jesus is talking about here is those who depend on God and those who do not. And I want to be careful because I don't want to um, over-spiritualize this and say that poor doesn't actually really mean poor. It does, but it also means something more. Because Jesus, uh, there are rich people in the Gospels who follow Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea, Zacchaeus, who we'll talk about in a minute. Rich people who realize who Jesus is and begin depending on him. And they are faithful people. But I also believe that God has special care, a special concern for the poor. For people who struggle to pay the bills. People who struggle to have enough food to eat. People who are brokenhearted because of the trouble that comes with that. Blessed are you. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. So this is the, the text, roughly, that we're working with. The question for me, as I've been working through this, is how do I do this? How, how do I make sense of this in my life? Because I'm not poor. I don't even want to pretend. I don't want to insult anyone who struggles to pay the bills to somehow spiritualize that I am. I'm not poor. I don't mean that. I mean that like as a challenge to myself. I've been reading this text and it's been challenging for me <clears throat> because 
are, and I think it's challenging for many of us because wealth, our understanding of wealth is relative. And what I mean by that is that our idea of wealthy depends on who's around us. You know, I was thinking about it this week. As someone who is pretty wealthy in the Kootenays, maybe drives a nice car and has a nice home, that person, you know, around here, it's kind of, you know, it's pretty wealthy. That same person living in Vancouver might not appear so wealthy anymore. They might actually just appear like maybe even lower middle class. I don't know if you've been in like Calgary or Horror, Vancouver, but that means like everybody drives uh, German-made high expensive cars and have these giant houses. So wealth is relative. But you take someone who is maybe like in our community, seems like you know they just barely get by, and you compare them to say someone in Kuala Lumpur in India, and they look like a king or a queen. So in that sense, wealth is relative. Not only that, <laughs> but our assessment of our wealth is relative. You don't have to, nobody has to raise their hands or anything here, but how many of you would say that you are rich? You know? <laughs> Not many of us do. Most of us think of rich as the person who, well, not me, but the person who makes way more than I do, who has way more than I do. It's interesting. You talk with someone who maybe makes um, $30,000 a year, and they say, oh, if I made, you know, the people who make like $60,000, like those are the people who are rich. <laughs> and then someone makes like, then maybe over a couple years later, then they make like $60,000. They say, oh, no, 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 sixty is not rich. People who make 100000 those are the rich people. And then, you know, you get a new job, you move up in your career, and you're making 100000 You know, I, I'm not really that rich. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm comfortable. <laughs> it's the people who make a million a year. Those are the rich people. That's how we tend to do it. That's what I mean by our idea of rich and poor is relative. And so for us, we have to ask this question. When Jesus says, blessed are the poor and woe to the rich, we have to figure out who is he talking about. And where do we as followers of Jesus, people who really want to follow him, where do we fit in? <clears throat> I've been thinking about this, and um, when Jesus says tokois or poor, I wonder if it's, a, if it's a faithful translation or a faithful interpretation to say, or to hear that as, woe to those who are the salt of the earth. That's a term that we use in our culture to mean people who are humble, who are gracious, who are generous, who depend on God. Because I know people who have lots of assets and they've done well in life who are salt of the earth, who depend on God even when they don't necessarily have to, yet they still do. They ask God, Lord, please direct me, please guide me. They are generous. They're humble. You don't, they don't act like some of the, like our, or our stereotypes of what rich people act like. So I hear Jesus, and I wonder if it's a faithful way to hear this as Jesus saying, woe to you who are the salt of the earth, who are humble, who depend on God, who are generous. But I also have to make the point too is that our wealth how much money we have affects how much we depend on God. The more money we have, the more resources we have, the less, at very least, the less we have to depend on God. And most of us 
depend less. The less we have, the more we have to depend on Him. Uh, a friend of mine was talking recently about how encouraging it was for them that they had to pray for eggs. And how God had provided eggs and eggs and eggs and like they had eggs coming out of their ears. And how encouraging that was for them. And in one sense, I was really encouraged by that. It was a great story. And it's been, I've been thinking about it for weeks. And at the same time, I was a little bit discouraged by it because I thought, I've never prayed for eggs. Never had to. Eat eggs, I just go buy eggs. So the more we have, the more we have to remember to depend on the Lord. I was thinking about this like an example. That, you know, when I'm hungry, <clears throat> I'm hungry, um, I just go over to this uh, uh, insulated cabinet in my house that's filled with food that runs 24-7 on electricity and keeps that food fresh and cold. I mean, what a luxury, right? Or I go over to, if I'm thirsty, I go over to the sink and I just pull this little lever up and water comes out that I can drink with no disease. Every time. <laughs> Except for those of you who have your water frozen in the last few months. And so this. And so, okay, so you know, maybe I go to the refrigerator and the one thing that I want isn't there. Do I wait for the harvest for it to come? No. I drive in this, or I, I get into this thing with uh, wheels on it. It costs thousands of dollars that most of the world have seen in pictures, and that's it. And I drive to a grocery store. Not a little market, you know, where they've got a few things here and there. I go to a grocery store where they've got aisles and aisles and aisles of food that goes from the floor to above my head. And I buy what I want. I don't have to wait to trade for it. I use the money that's, that I've saved and the job that I have. And I think about how that is so different than, say, maybe one of my brothers uh, in the Congo. A, a covenanter. A person who is part of a covenant church in a rural Congolese village. And when they're hungry, there's no refrigerator to go to. And if maybe they don't, maybe if they've run out of uh, dried food on their shelf, they don't go to the grocery store. When they don't drive there, at very least they walk, or they maybe ride a bike. And maybe they don't have money to actually buy it. Maybe they have to trade something from the harvest that they had. Or maybe they have to pray, Lord, please give me work today so that I can buy groceries tomorrow. And it gets me thinking about how my Congolese brother depends on the Lord. Because in my story of my life, not once did I have to pray, Lord, please provide. I believe that he has. That's the truth, but it's so easy for me to take it for granted. I don't have to pray, Lord, please, please have there be food in the refrigerator when I open it. Or please have there be a car in the garage when I go to, go to the grocery store to buy food. Or please let there be actually some food at the grocery store when I show up. I never pray that. I'm grateful 
As I'm saying it right now, I'm grateful, Lord God, thank you. Thank you that, uh, that you have blessed me with these things. But I start thinking about our brothers in other parts of the world, even our brothers and sisters, even in our own congregation. People who just barely get by, who struggle to pay the bills. And it's challenging for me. I hear Jesus' words, and it's challenging. How do we be tokois, poor? How do we be salt of the earth? I want to be careful though too because I don't think God desires us to be poor. Maybe some he's called to it. I think that's true. There are some people who God has called to a vow of poverty, to give up everything and to follow him. But I think his desire is that we would have enough. I don't know if you notice it, but most of the times when I pray, Lord, give us today our daily bread, that we would have enough, just enough, not so much that we would take you for granted, but enough that we wouldn't do wrong things like steal. That actually comes from Scripture. That's our prayer, that, that we would have enough, that all of us would have enough. But not too much that we would take God for granted, like I do when I'm hungry. I just go to the fridge and get what I want, or if it's not there, I go to the store and buy it. So I hear Jesus speaking this to the people around him. <clears throat> and as I think about it, I mean, one difference is, is that in their culture, they had mainly lots of poor people, a small group of elite people who were kings, high priests, who were extremely wealthy, and this tiny little sliver of like merchant, or mercantile, mercantile merchants in the middle there. But the vast majority of people were poor. We live in a different time. I mean, most of us here are middle class. Some on either ends of that. And so how do we make sense of this for our lives? Because we definitely don't want to be the people who are being warned, woe to the rich. Woe to those who think that they have they've made it, that they are self-made people. They don't really need any help from anybody. That God is nice as a way to get you to heaven, but in terms of the rest of their lives, I kind of just pay my own way. Like, woe to people like that. So I've been thinking about how do we respond? You know, as I hear this text speaking to us, raising questions about how do we live? Are we salt of the earth? Or do we still have um, some things that, we, that God needs to work on us? For those of you who are here this morning who are poor, who have trouble paying the bills, who are not sure how you're going to make it next month, blessed are you. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. For the rest of us, include me in this, how do we respond? And I was thinking of R&R. Not rest and relaxation, but actually repentance and response. That we begin praying, Lord, Holy Spirit, please show me the places where I act like the rich that you describe in this passage. That I may ask for your forgiveness and change. Lord, please show me. I want to depend on you more in my life. The wealth that I have, Lord, remind me again that it all came from you. Even the ability I have, the brain you've given me or the skill that you've given me, these are all gifts from you. 
that as much as I'd like to take credit for it, Lord, I owe it to you. Help me to remember that. Forgive me when I forget it and I take you for granted, when I stop depending on you. So repentance. The second part is response. And I was thinking of the response of this one rich guy in Luke's gospel. <clears throat> Zacchaeus. Right. You know, Jesus is coming into town. He wants to see Jesus. And for some reason he couldn't see because of the crowd, so he climbs into a tree. Jesus stops under the tree and says, Zacchaeus, come down, because I'm coming to eat at your place today. And Zacchaeus is overwhelmed. He says, Lord, please forgive me. I'm going to devote half of everything I own to the poor, to the tokois. And everything that I've taken, uh, um, as a tax collector, that's how you made money, is there was a tax. And whatever you could get above that, that was yours. So it's like extortion. It's like, uh, you know, like in the mafia movies where they say you pay for protection. So whatever the tax was, plus. He said, whatever I've taken illegally or wrongly, I will give back fourfold. If I took a dollar, I'll give back four. If I took $400, I'll give back 1600 We see his response. And it models for us, for those of us who are not tokois in the sense that we have lots of stuff and our bank accounts are fine, that we would be more generous, that we would share more, that we would purposefully ask God that we would depend on him more. Imagine what it would look like in our church if we were even more generous than we are. Because I know some of you and I know your stories and how generous you are. Generous with people in our community. Generous with supporting this church and its ministry. But imagine if we were even more generous. You know, it's a sad thing that our society, it, it revolves around money and greed. But the good side, the flip side of that is that when we are generous, that speaks volumes to people. We live in a society where people hoard more and more for me and mine. Oh, here's five dollars, you know, to help out with this cause. How powerful it is when we help someone with thousands of dollars, or we give someone, or we share with somebody. How powerful is that when we live in a world where that doesn't happen very often? Imagine what it will look like if we were to respond like that. Amen.